0: Good to be with you all this morning and continue to be going through our series in Genesis this summer. Before you open up your Bibles, though, um, if you're already opened up to Genesis chapter 16, just put your finger in it. Um, If if you're not opened up your Bible app yet, swiped there, then don't do so yet. I want to try something this morning. Um, In a moment, I'm going to step away from the pulpit and I want us all just wait for a second. I want want us all to sit here and we'll wait together. It's not an official moment of silence or anything like that. But I want us to just feel the experience of waiting. All right, everybody come up, take a breath. I know that was different, wasn't it? Um, It it was a little bit odd. I got to be honest, I wasn't sure how it was going to go this morning. And so it's your turn to be honest with me. Five seconds in, who was reaching for their phone already, right? We we don't have any reason to wait anymore. We're out of step with waiting in our culture. Um, you, You could point to different companies, just one word companies, here we go, say Amazon, right? What would we ever do without Prime in our life? You can get a laptop, a pot, a pot with a plant, and a car, a kitty on your front doorstep in two days, no matter where you live. We don't have to wait anymore. Let's throw out another one, Netflix. Right? You can instantly stream whatever you want. Kids don't grow up with commercials. Thirty second advertisements do do a do a great thing to help, you know, them jumpstart how they uh, handle things. My, my kids will never grow up understanding that on TV you have to watch what's scheduled on TV rather than what you want to watch and just choose it off the screen. And so waiting is something that is not a part of our culture. In fact, we've been instructed in the ways of impatience and uh, what has won the day is expediency. It brings me back to our exercise a moment ago. You see, the, the cards were stacked in my favor. You have someone standing on stage telling you to wait, and you have nothing better to do at the moment but wait for me to break the silence. And you see, that's the point, isn't it? Because in our day to day life, there's no stage, there's nobody to stand on it and tell us it's okay to wait. You see, outside of Sunday morning, there's no one standing on stage necessarily saying, God is good, just wait for him in your life. Whenever you're waiting for those test results, they said it'd be a week like they always do, but it's already been two, it's going on three. Waiting's hard. We're gonna have a lot of freshmen coming on campus here this fall. We'll also have some seniors that'll be looking to graduate this next May. And they're all asking the same question. Doesn't matter how many years they've been here. What is my passion? You see, they're waiting on that answer. What, they're waiting to see what they're going to do for the rest of their life. Maybe you're waiting on a special someone in your life to share your life with. Maybe you're waiting for that pay raise that you've been waiting for for years. It's probably not coming again this year. See, so you've been on your knees night after night and God doesn't seem to answer. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if our life was like a cheesy Super Bowl commercial? We had someone following us around in the house, outside, on the way to work, following us on the sidewalk with a bullhorn yelling in our ear, just wait. Be patient and know that God is good. We wait on him already. Wouldn't that be nice? See, the point that I want us to wrestle with this morning, it's this. We can phrase it in a simple question up on the screen. Do we trust God in periods of waiting? You can say it even simpler. How well do we wait, Church. You see, we're going to be in Genesis 16 this morning. Go ahead and open that Bible up. Uh, swipe on the app now to get there. Last week, Brandon introduced us to Abram and Sarai. Give me the same courtesy we gave him. If I, if I do Abraham or Sarah instead of Abraham or Sarai, it's the same people. It doesn't matter till chapter 17. And we're not going there today, so we're, we're good with whatever name we give them. But if you've been walking through and reading with that bookmark this morning, Uh, walking through the week, reading through Genesis, we're not in 12 anymore, we're in 16, Um, Abraham and Sarai also aren't in 12 anymore, you see they're in a new period of life, our lingo, we might say they're in a new season of life, and it's one precisely of waiting, let's just see it in the text this morning, begin reading with me in verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children, so go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarai, his, wa- or Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. The first thing I want to point out, church, because it's the first thing that jumps out to me in the passage, is 10 years. It's been 10 years since chapter 12, 10 years since the promises were given to Abraham, right? That his seed, he, out of him would come a great nation. His life would be a blessing to all the nations over all the earth. 10 years since Abram and Sarah had moved out of Haran, they'd taken God up on his promise and went with it, 10 years, and, but there's still no son. You see, there's no heir in waiting, therefore there's no kingdom, there's no great nation on the horizon because it's got to start with a son. Abram's been living in the promised land, but he's only owned a portion of it so far. God wears the promise at. And so it's time for plan B. And it's precisely at this moment in the text that we find the central failure of Abram, not his first failure if you've been reading this week, But it's a central failure, and it's right there in front of us. You see, who's Abram listening to? Verse 2, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Literally, what your text says is that Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Last time we heard a sentence quite like that was all the way back in Eden. Right, God, God's, uh, he's stepping, he's going through Eden, and he's doling out punishments left and right, one to the serpent, one to Eve, and he gets to Adam, and he says this, this is the cause, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. <laughs> you see, it, Eve was probably listening in that moment, and she's, man, if, it's, if it wasn't God talking, I'd be a little mad right now, but it is, so I can't really do anything about it. But the point is this, is that we don't listen and hear what God hears because it's not an Eve problem, it's not a Sarai problem, any more than it's an Adam or an Abram problem. All four are failing to listen to the right voice. You see, they're not heeding the voice of God. The highlighted sin of Abram and Sarai in Genesis, Genesis 16 Uh, contrary to thought it's not fornication it's not this moral dilemma we already see brewing it's another f-word it's faithlessness and it's bigger than that you see it's a worship problem God says listen to me and we take the advice of our closest neighbor so God says okay we'll go go serve your neighbor and instead of serving we come back empty-handed offering up muted praise god you see if we don't trust the god that we worship then we will not trust him either in times of waiting but i know we still have genesis 16 to take care of right and in our modern sensibilities we have issues with it you see sarah has a moral dilemma moral decision here on her hands but before we go too far let's step back and say who's hagar what do we know about hagar because if you're anything like me we jump to conclusions right and she gets a real bad rap we play this good guy bad guy routine more specifically good gal bad gal routine And we know what in she lands on but it's not that simple in the text you see if we recall back to genesis 12 abraham received the promise from god they moved to the promised land but shortly after there's a famine so they got to keep going further south they make it to egypt don't they and you see, while they're in Egypt, Abraham has this great idea that he gives uh, Sarai over to Pharaoh so he can save his own skin, and he, he forgets that God works in Egypt too. And so God sends a plague on Egypt and on Pharaoh, and if it, pretty soon Pharaoh forgets all about Sarai, he gives her back to Abraham, wants them both out of town, gives them all the silver, all the gold they can take with them, and if you can hear the Exodus story already starting to brew, you're right, I'll bet that's, another, that's a story for another day. And so the point is that Pharaoh, in his rush of generosity to get Sarai and Abram out of town, he also provides them with servants of which Hagar became the prime maidservant of Sarai. There's a few more things we have to remember. And you see this arrangement we find in the text with Sarai offering Hagar up to her own husband is this, that it's a common practice in the ancient world. You see, we've dug up a lot of texts out of the ancient Near East, and text after text re- reiterates the same point that there are these arrangements between these slave women who provide legitimate children, legitimate heirs for those whom they serve. It was, it was part of their duty. And a second point, and this isn't to belittle Abraham or Sarai at all, but you see, they don't think about conception the way we do. You see, we, we have at least a small scientific bent, and we realize at the most basic level that conception has to do, and it culminates within chromosome pairs, right? Pair, as in two people. You see, they heard that Abraham needed to have an heir, and the heir would be Abraham's, but who, who carried it wasn't necessarily the issue what was of issues, the social ramifications that come in the process. And we'll see what that process is beginning in verse 4. He, that is Abraham, slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And she does, because Sarai then mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. You see, when Hagar realizes that she can do something that Sarai can't, she can provide a legitimate heir, it all of a sudden questions the legitimacy of who is Abram's wife. You see, when Hagar can do something, Sarai can't. She dangles it over her head. In church, as a side note, how many times do we do that same sort of thing? You see, we treat our relationship like rungs on a ladder. As long as there's more people down there than there are above us, then we're doing all right. But the most basic meaning in verse 4, whenever Hagar says that uh, she despised Sarai, it literally means this, that Sarai looked small in Hagar's eyes we do the same thing to one another, we can condemn those below us because they look small to us. We're still jealous of those above, but we can at least keep those ones that are below us in their place. So if if we can learn anything from Sarah and Hagar about interpersonal relationships, it's this, that they only cause division when we make people look small. You see, it's easier to replace the image of God in somebody with an image of inadequacy. And so, so far, we've seen the results of what not to do from Abram and Sarai. Whenever we're in a waiting period, we don't do the example they've given for us here. And what we would expect is that God's going to come out from behind the scenes, right? That this is his chosen couple, right? Abram and Sarai chapter 12, and so he's got to set them straight because we need to get the family line to Jesus, we need to get to us today, and so God, put your fist down, make things right, but in Genesis chapter 16, we we don't get the final verdict on Abram and Sarai, what we get is a compassionate God who seeks after and tries to come to the one who's been injured most in this situation. And that's Hagar. In fact, I feel confident in saying that many of us in this room know what it's like to be Hagar. We, we've been her before. You see, we've felt locked away from God's favor, and rather it was by our own sinful actions or the way that our sinful actions were looked down upon by those in the church. Some of us today may be feeling a little Hagar-like. And what soon becomes clear, however, is that Hagar, no matter how far she's ran away from Abram and Sarai, she's not alone. God's coming. So finish finish out with me where we're going to get in the text today. We'll go through verse 13. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? "'I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai,' she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, "'Go back to your mistress and submit to her.' The angel added, "'I will so increase your descendants "'that they will be too numerous to count.'" You see, that sounds a lot like the promise to Abraham in chapter 12. Interesting. The angel of the Lord also said to her, "'You are now with child, and you will have a son. "'You shall name him Ishmael, "'for the Lord has heard of your misery.'" He, he will be a donkey, of a, a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Um, the future of Ishmael's a little bleak here. But the point is to focus on Sarai, because she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. There's a lot of things we can unpack in the text this morning, but let me just hit on a couple of those striking details. And the first one is this, that Hagar is not only the first woman, but she is, in fact, the first person, period, in the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord appears to. Did you know that? A couple chapters, it's going to be Abraham. A couple more chapters after that, it'll be Jacob. A book later, it's going to be Moses. You see, the angel of the Lord appears in moments of need, and he visits and he has a message for God's people, and the first person he visits is Hagar, someone we usually reject. A second details this. You see, it's relatively easy to figure out where Hagar's going. It would have been really nice if I provided you guys with a map this morning to show you, but I didn't. And so, play along with me here. And if if you think about Israel, where Palestine's at, you know, you got that skinny north-south route over there in the east. And if you think about the middle of where that might be, that's probably where Abram and Sarai were, around Jerusalem and Hebron. And if you travel about 70 to 80 miles south, southwest, um, you come to this road called Shur, where we think it would be. Um, Let me make it simpler for you. Hagar's halfway back to Egypt. She's halfway back home. See, we do the same thing. One obstacle rolls into our path and it sends us stumbling. One misstep. The next thing we know, we're back doing the same old things, same old habits that got us in the same old place we were. And yet God, he chooses to close this distance with Hagar and to bring her her own promise. And church God does that with us as well he closes the distance but one final point to make is that Hagar in this text she is again the only woman to actually name God herself the only person in the entire Old Testament to do this she gives God a nickname and she calls him the seeing God or the one who sees me you see she names him because of the compassion he has given her that's how he that's how she identifies who God is And I think it's safe to say we all want that same thing. The people that are closest to us, we want them to know us for who we are. We want God to accept us um, in spite of our faults, because if God loves us and he doesn't know who we really are, what happens when he finds out who we really are? And God no longer wants to be around us, right? You see, we want a God who sees us and knows us completely and yet still chooses to pursue us into the desert. We all want to be understood. My daughter, Elise, she's about five and a half years old now. Um, She's going through a lot of changes. She's getting some new hormones, and I'm going through a lot of changes with her. And we're figuring each other out. There's tension at times. There's times I feel kind of outside of her bubble. I can't really interact with her every now and then. I've tried to talk to my wife about it. You see, I grew up with a brother. My wife's one of a couple sisters. And she said, try just listening to her. I said, but what if she's doing something wrong? She said, just listen to her. Well, what if it's a disciplinary issue? Right, us dads are really good at that. We, we can handle discipline well. And my wife said, how about you try listening to her? And so I, I did, and I sit there and I listen. And, and she, she mischaracterizes the event sometimes. She mischaracterizes me or Ariel. She, you know she, she rambles on and on. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But she sees me seeing her. And she can listen to me listening intently to her. And it makes all the difference. If we can give all of our attention to this one thought. Let's do it right now that we have a heavenly Father who sees us. In spite of the struggles that you know, in spite of your past, the faults that you have and continue to bear, God sees you and he pursues you. You see, God is as much the God of Hagar's, listen to this, he's the God of Hagar's as much as he's the God of Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's. Our God is one who pursues us, and he fulfilled the promise to Abraham through the blood of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross and the communion that we just participated in, that blood washes over us, even the Hagar's like you and I. But to come full circle this morning, to wrap this up, you see, we have to be reminded that if we don't trust that God who sees us, if we don't worship him, appropriately, we're misguided to think then that when we come into a period of waiting that the trust will all of a sudden appear. It won't. You see, every Hagar will eventually become a Sarai. Because when, the, when, when, you, when you bend your knees in prayer night after night and the answers aren't coming, when it seems like God is seeing other people, he's doing things other places in other people's life but not your own, All of a sudden, yourself as Hagar, one pursued by God, you'll see yourself as a Sarai, and all of a sudden, you're waiting. You may be waiting 10 years, and the question is, how do we wait? And so, the challenge I want to leave us with this morning, the challenge not only for you, but for me, is this, church, let's wait well.